The events that happened early Friday morning in Colorado certainly remind us um, that evil exists in this world, right? Um, a few weeks ago, I was uh, with a good friend of mine who was uh, really just lamenting uh, the evils all around um, on a global scale. We hear stories of 50 Christians in Nigeria burned in a pastor's home. On a national scale, we hear stories of deranged young men walking into movie theaters with guns. Um, On a local level, we hear stories of violence just, just this morning, just found out a friend of mine was shot and killed. A friend of Kenny's as well. He was a good dad. Um, his son was in my, is, is in my daughter's class. I, last, one of the last times I spoke with him, spent four hours just talking about life, talking about the job that he's working, the life he's trying to create for his kids, saving saving to buy a house. Shared the gospel with him as clearly as I possibly could and he listened to every word of it. As, as, we, look, as we look around us, as we look inward at our own flesh and as we realize that the evil so often is right here as well, Ongoing sins that we don't repent of. A desire to continue in the flesh. As we hear of tragedies. Fathers who were uh, murdered. Their lives taken from them for no apparent reason. Children left without a dad. We, we have, the way I see it, and this is the conversation I was ironically having with my friend a couple weeks ago. We have two different responses. These stories can lead us to despair. They can lead us uh, to doubt the sovereignty and the goodness of God and have hope for the world in the sense of the second coming of Christ, coming back in justice, bringing to life those who have died and restoring the peace of God. So we could either lose hope in that and find despair, or we can lose hope in the world. And I mean in the world. Not for the world and what Christ is going to do for the world, but we can lose, we should lose hope in the things of, the ways of, the people of the world. This belief that in some way we are intrinsically righteous and that that we can in, in some way through our own efforts do away with all of the violence.
We're, we're in, in, in Ephesians this morning. Um, Paul has been in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and then onward into the rest of this letter. He is laying out for us a new humanity. A new, unified humanity. Where peace and love reign. Look at verse 2. These are the characteristics of it. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another, with one another in love. We, we have been called now to a new humanity. He's, chapter 1. The Father chose you. The Son bled for you, covered your sins. The Spirit has indwelled you and sealed you and given you power. Chapter 2, you were dead, he reminds us, but by the way, God made you alive in Christ. And chapter 3, Jew and Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, are being brought together as the body of Christ. And oh, by the way, the angelic world is watching us. And we have this cosmic significance. We are part of a new humanity. So this morning, I, with, with the knowledge, the news that I received this morning, I have to remind myself of what Paul's going to remind us. That there is something new taking place. That violence is not the end. Death is not the end. There is hope, and it's not in this world. It's in the Christ who is going to one day come and demolish the evil and set up his reign. The picture that we're going to receive is found in verse 16, 15 and 16 of chapter 4. It says, rather, in every way, we're being built into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part of the body works together and does its part, it grows into this beautiful new Humanity. Now, think about the complexity of the human body, all right? You're going to eat a hamburger. Do you, real, do you realize the many things in your body that has to work together in order to eat a hamburger? Like muscles in your forearms and palms, pulling the tendons in your fingers, the hand-eye coordination to move the hamburger to your mouth, the teeth to rip the food off, and to chew it, the saliva to break down the starches, the esophagus with these waves of muscles that just push this food downward into the stomach where it's bathed in acid, creating fuel for the body. I mean, that's just a layman's version of what happens. And by the way, if one, if, if one of those parts were to break down, you'd have trouble eating a hamburger. This is, the, this is the picture of the new humanity that's being built. This is the picture of what we're part of globally, eternally, and it's a picture of what we're part of as a local church as well. That we are being built together as 
a body to demonstrate to the world the goodness of God through this new humanity. And if you're a Christian here today, you are called to be a citizen of this new humanity. And you're called to actively work your part in this new humanity. While diverse, I mean the body, diverse, all different functions, the esophagus, very different from the hands. But unity in the diversity. A unity in the diversity which makes life happen. On a physical scale, to demonstrate to the world that God is this, God is this amazing, beautiful creator to put these bodies together. And on a spiritual scale, as we work together spiritually as a body, with Christ as our head, to demonstrate that God is beautiful and amazing. And he's doing something in our midst. So what we're going to do... Uh, we're going to walk through Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Um, I'm just going to make three observations on Ephesians chapter 4. There is so much in here, the first 16 verses, that uh, we, we really can't cover everything I would like to cover. All right, so one thing, I'm just going to say it right now, we're not going to get deep into spiritual gifts this morning. I, I believe that probably deserves a whole sermon series in and of itself, um, and, and how that works, how we operate in our gifts uh, we're going to have to just kind of go over some things so that we can get the nuggets, the truth, the big thing, the big picture of what Paul is presenting. So we're going to go through it, three observations, and then I'm going to give you a formula because I know how much you like math, all right? So I'm going to give you a formula uh, so we can walk out of here with, with um, an, a, a picture, an idea of what it's going to look like as we become this unified new body, which, by the way, we can take open. <clears throat> verse 1, Ephesians chapter 4. Let me, let me actually pray before I get into this. Lord, I uh, do ask that you just remind me of uh, your beauty this morning. Remind me of your, your hope. Remind me of your power to save individuals. Remind me of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future resurrection of every one of us who has been adopted as your child. God, as we go through Ephesians 4 and as we begin now to kind of take a turn in Ephesians and look at the second half here and, and discover the, uh, this new humanity that we are now citizens of, that we're part of, and today as we look at the unity in diversity, I pray that we will, uh, that we will see it, that we will see what you are communicating to us through your servant Paul. And God, I pray that you will do a work in our hearts that we won't just walk out of here with, with knowledge. We won't just walk out of here with stories or ideas or theories, but we will walk out of here a unified body where each part is, is working, functioning properly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner, he reminds us again he's a prisoner, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
Because of the blood of Christ which has been poured upon you, you have been invited. This word calling is, uh, you could also translate that the invitation. You have been invited into this new covenant. You've been invited into this gospel kind of life. And you, so you've bust out of this old coffin of sin and the trespasses that you once laid comfortably in. It's no longer comfortable to you. He's woke, he woke you up. You've busted out of it. He's made you alive. He's given you his spirit. Now, Paul is turning us. He's kind of, this is the center of the book, and he's literally just turning our attention now toward this new humanity and the practical, the ins and outs of what this new humanity looks like. And he says, he begins this whole section, I would say chapters 4, 5, and 6, though Paul, of course, didn't write with chapters. He begins it through saying, so now, act like it. If you've really had this invitation, if you've really been filled with the Spirit of God, he says, so walk worthy of that calling. Live your, live your life in a way that makes sense according to the calling that God has called you to, the invitation that you have received. Verse 2. With all humility, here are the characteristics once again, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. Which, by the way, just a side note, if you this morning, I'm, I'm, I'm so heavy this morning. I really am. We have to be reminded of these characteristics. We're not characterized by the violence that's out there. We're characterized by humility. We're characterized by walking in love together, by peace. We're united in the bond of peace. This beautiful gospel of Christ that holds us together. And amidst the craziness of the world around us, we are united in peace. Verse 3, eager, he says, eager, that's an active word, meaning you are moving toward it, all right? You're actually doing something about it, all right? So you are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, and here is the first observation, all right, from this passage, verse 4. First observation number one, if you want to take notes, observation number one. God is the foundation for our unity. God is the foundation for our unity. The unity that we can discover, this kind of peace, these kind of characteristics as we operate together, it's not something that we can just bring about on our own accord. It's not something that we can just work hard toward and, and, and find all of a sudden unity. On the contrary, look at verse 4. Here's where unity comes from. This is the foundation. He says there is one body and one spirit. Everybody say spirit. spirit. It's referring to the Holy Spirit who has filled us and has united us. So as my body, physically speaking, has one spirit, we as a body do not have multiple spirits. We have one spirit that is filling us as a body. One spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and, oh, by the way, in all. Our God is the foundation for our unity. Think of the church, the early church in Acts, the, the second chapter of Acts, if you're familiar with the birth of the church. They didn't find unity, all right? They, they didn't all of a sudden decide to sell everything and make sure all needs were met and meet in homes and small groups and eat together. They, they didn't sit down and create some kind of plan for unity. Like, all right, if, if this thing's gonna, if this thing's gonna work, if we're gonna start this global movement, we've gotta be united. So here, what we're gonna, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna meet in homes. We're going to eat together, and then everybody has to sell everything, all right? And if, any needs, if anybody has a need, we'll meet those needs. And then they just so happen to find this great unit. That's not the way it worked. As my mom would say, that's getting the cart before the horse, right? I think my mom would say it that way. See, the beginning of chapter 2 in Acts was what? The coming of the... We already said it once, Holy Spirit. And immediately after they were filled as a body with one spirit, what happened? They were unified. They ate together. They met in homes. They sold things when somebody had a need to meet that need. It just made sense because you're one now. You have one spirit. Listen, this is... This is subtle, but this is huge. What we're talking about here, when we talk about unity and diversity, this first huge observation we need to make is that God is the foundation for the unity, not us. Not our labor, not our work, not the great things that we can do. It's God that's the foundation. What this means is this. It means that us as a body, as a local church here in Christmas Ethics Rec Center, we're not effective in ministry simply because we do such a good job at loving. We're effective in ministry, if we're effective in ministry, is because the Spirit ministers through us. The Spirit does the work. We're not breaking down racial and economic barriers because we put on such great race dialogues and panels but rather we are filled with the Spirit who broke down the wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, and by all means he can break down the wall of hostility between every other people group out there. Amen? We're not unified as a body because we simply agree to disagree on foundational truths. We're unified as a body because we are filled with the Spirit who has the ability to implant truth in our heads and see beyond heresy. We're not seeing conversions in our midst simply because we're so creative in our evangelism strategies. We're seeing conversions in our midst because the Holy Spirit has filled us and is at work in our midst. That's observation number one. 
that God is the foundation of, uh, for unity and diversity. Observation number two, if you're taking notes. The church has been given what it takes to create and carry out unity and diversity. It's kind of a long point. The church has been given now what it takes to carry out unity in diversity. Look at verse 7. He says, but, but grace, okay? This word grace, it's the Greek word charis, which by the way is where we get the word charismatic. All right, now, little side note right here. There's not one movement that we should label charismatic. The church at our core is charismatic. We, the only reason we can do ministry is because we have been given a charis. We've been given the grace. We've been given the gift to be able to do that. So we are called to be the most charismatic body there is. So, verse 7, but grace or charis or gift was given. Look at this. What does that say? To the pastors? But a gift was given to the pastors. Somebody going to correct me. <laughs> a gift was given to each one of you. A gift was given to every single person who has been slain. Their, their, their flesh has been cut. Their spirit has been made alive. And at that moment, God gives them gifts. And the image here is actually of war. Look at verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. This is quoting the Psalms. And he gave gifts to many men. This is war imagery. If you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia or seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you remember this, this part in the book where Father Christmas gives gifts to the children. So to Peter, I believe he gives a sword and a shield. Uh, to Susan, he gives a bow and an arrow. To uh, the little one, what's her name? L Lucy. He gives uh, this, this potion, that, this ointment that can heal, and he gives her a dagger. These very diverse gifts. They're not all equal. I mean, a potion to heal is very different from a sword. But what happens is, is this, and this is what Lewis does as he kind of continues the story, is these gifts then come together to form a unified fighting unit. So as diverse as our bodies are in eating a hamburger, the esophagus very different from the hands. The spiritual gifts that he's given to not just the pastors, but to each one of you are very diverse. And when those gifts then, when those weapons for unity come together in the fight, we begin to find exactly why God gave me this gift. Why God gave you that gift. He mentions then four gifts here. These are particular gifts. These are, this is not an exhaustive li list of spiritual gifts. And again, we're going to come back to spiritual gifts in another series and do a bigger and broader overview. These are four of somewhere between 28 and 30 spiritual gifts that we find in the scriptures, which, by the way, still probably is not an exhaustive list. Most theologians believe that there's a... Uh, unlimited, or a, a rather an unknown number of spiritual gifts. The four that he mentions are uh, uh, prefaced by an article. You know, you know what an article is? 
Anybody pass fourth grade English? It's the, all right? <laughs> the. So th what this means is he's referring most likely to specific offices. So these are gifts then that are given to certain people to function as a, in an office and in a role within the church, okay? So these gifts that he mentions are, verse 11, he gave the apostles. These are the, uh, the 12 and then a, a, a few more that literally were trained by Jesus and then were sent out as the initial church planters. He gives the prophets. These are those who have received a direct word from God and are speaking it with, with power. He gives the evangelists. These are those who uh, can effectively communicate the gospel with such clarity and, and you're, you're seeing people repent and believe in Jesus. And he gives shepherds and teachers, which most theologians believe is referring to one gift or maybe two gifts in one office. Shepherd slash teacher is one way that you could write that or pastor slash teacher. But here's what I want to point out. And this is why I don't want to belabor right here, okay? This is what I want to point out is in the next verse, in verse 12. Here's the purpose God gives these certain gifts to certain individuals to hold certain offices, leadership roles within the church. This is the purpose, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So let's back up a little bit. The Spirit has, been, has given gifts to, uh, to who? Every one of you gave gifts to certain people to equip the all of us. And now who is it that's responsible for the work of the ministry? The church, the congregation, the people, the saints. This is the beauty of diversity in our midst. You each have been given a specific role, a, a specific gift, and you have each been called to take responsibility for the ministry. My role as the pastor is to equip. It's to shower you in truth. It's to disciple you, and it's to send you out to do the work of the ministry. And I'll prove it to you. It's, it's, this is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, he says, lest there be any of you an evil, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, not just pastors, people, the saints, Take care, take watch over each other, lest there is an evil, unbelieving heart in your midst. Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider, not let pastors consider, all right? Let us consider how we may stir one another up for good works. Let us figure it out. Let us talk about it. Let us get into each other's lives and encourage one another and stir up a passion and a heart to do good in society and in the church. James chapter 5, therefore, confess your sins to the priest. doesn't say that. 
Confess your sins to one another, to each other. You are to be the priest to your neighbor. And then finally in Galatians chapter 6, again speaking to everyone, bear one another's burdens. Side note for me, as a pa- this is just purely me speaking as a pastor. I'm not the Lord, as Paul would say, right? If more churches understood the biblical call for the church, the biblical vision for the church, and churches were bearing the weight of the ministry among themselves in the congregation, serving one another, utilizing your gifts, confessing your sins to each other, counseling one another, strengthening each other, discipling one another, bearing one another's burdens, there would be less burnout in pastoral ministry. That's just the the truth. Pastors can only take so much. And it's not the pastor's role to bear everyone's burdens, to disciple everyone, to care for everyone. It's the church's role. It's your role. And see, we live in an age right now where the, where the church has so reflects business culture. It's disgusting. Churches church buildings or rec centers or whatever you might use become nothing more than like a shopping mall. I'm, I'm not talking about architecture. I'm talking about what, the mentality of the people that go there. They're going to obtain things. They're going to get something. They're going to walk away with a nice little purchase. And then they throw their money in the offering plate because they just bought something. And then congregations become customers And they come and they file in and they sit and they listen to the pastors who are little more than CEOs putting on awesome programs to dispense theological and religious goods. Guys, that is so far away from the biblical vision of the church. The biblical vision of the church is that you, like I'm literally speaking to every single one of you, are to bear one another's burdens you are to make that phone call that you don't really want to make. You are to sit down with that person who you know is going to drain you. You are to disciple. You are to encourage. You are to convict those who are in sin. You are to be the church to one another. That's the second observation. So we have been then, so the the foundation, are you tracking with me here? The foundation for unity is God himself, all right? The church then has been given the call and the means to carry out unity and diversity. Third observation is this. There is danger in diversity. Everybody go, hmm, there's danger in diversity. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. In an effort, in an effort to, um, to embrace diversity, 
in an effort to embrace all backgrounds, all people, all right, very good things, in an effort to create multi, fill in the blank, multicultural, multiracial, multi-economic, which by the way, if we are going to be a biblical New Testament expression of God's people in this city, we better be multiracial, multi-economic, multicultural. But here's the danger, okay? In, in, in a desire to embrace these very good things, where we can often drift toward is doctrinal diversity. We hold doctrine loosely. We hold truth loosely. Because we've got to stay unified. So we agree to disagree. Look, look, look at the point of unity. I mean, I'm not just saying this based on my own ideas. All right? Like if I had a list of like 100 things to talk about, um, and one of them was that the church is called to be unified in knowledge, that would be on the bottom of my list. Because, I mean, can you get more countercultural than that? Oh, by the way, we're all supposed to believe the same thing. So, so it's coming from the scriptures. Look, verse 13. So this is the point of it. Actually, let's skip up, go back to verse 12. Um, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And here, here's the goal. Until we attain unity of the faith, not multi-faith, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the me measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may grow up to look like Christ should look. Verse 14 so that we may no, be, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So we're not carried about by every book that comes along that's intriguing and sounds good. So we're not carried, along, carried about by every person who can talk eloquently and explains something that seems profound to you, even though it's heresy. So we're not carried along by every blog that we read and every article that we read so that we can be solid and unified in biblical truth is what he's saying. Now, you may ask, why is Paul making such a big deal about this? Because guys, I know, like, I've, I've been there and I, I, I know the mentality of like, I don't want to just, I don't want to make like, doctrine a big deal. I don't want to make, I mean, I've thought those things before in an effort to just be unified. Why does Paul say that the goal of unity is that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? This past week in the New York Times, they published an article by uh, Ross Douthat um, entitled, can liberal Christianity be sa saved? And what Douthat does in this article is he's tracking one mainline denomination. And he's, he's tracking their 
some, somewhat of their, their recent history and, and sort of where they're currently at. And it's based on the fact that it, within this denomination, over the past three decades, the mentality has been, if we are going to become a church for the future, if we're going to have, uh, be relevant, if we're going to attract the, the younger generation, we have to hold doctrine at arm's length. We have to hold truth, what we believe to be truth, at arm's length. We have to be flexible. We have to be able to adopt and, uh, adapt and to change the way that we believe and the way that we interpret the scriptures. Is, I mean, that's literally the guiding, the guiding thought behind, behind uh, this, this denomination. And so for the three de- last three decades, they have been working toward holding doctrine at arm's length. Um, I'll, I'll, let me read the article. I'll read a, a, just a bit of it. Quote, uh, within this denomination, every element of traditional Christianity, he says, must be dismissed. This includes biblical authority, sexual ethic, uh, the divinity of Christ, the resurrection. Every element of traditional Christianity must be dismissed in order to grow and become the church for the future. But then what he does, what Douthat does, is he then tracks the decline within this denomination. So he says, they've spent then the last several, de- several decades changing and then changing some more into, into one of the most self-consciously progressive Christian bodies in the United States. And then as a result, quote, the church is flexible to the point of indifference on dogma, friendly to se- sexual liberation in almost every form, willing to blend Christianity with other faiths, and eager to downplay theology entirely in favor of secular political causes. Then listen to this. This is, what, this is his conclusion. Yet, of in, instead of attracting a younger, more open-minded demographic with these changes, the, the, the dying has proceeded apace. In the last decade alone, average Sunday attendance has dropped 23%. And by the way, the next generation is not flocking to these churches. Now, why do I bring that up? Why does Paul bring this up? The, the, the fastest way to kill the work and the Spirit of God in our midst, the fastest way to do that is to hold doctrine at arm's length. It's to hold truth, biblical truth, at arm's length. We will then create a ministry based on anyone's ideas, not filled with the powerful, uniting Spirit of God, and a ministry not really worth being part of because there's not a whole lot of transformational truth there. So here's, I mean, this is, this is what Paul's laying out for us. We are, we, we are to use our gifts, we are to use our thinking, our intellect, our, our time to be together, to invest in one another's lives so that we may be strengthened and encouraged to such a degree that heresy comes through us and we distinguish the spirits. And we are not drifting 
by every single idea and doctrine out there. That's what, simply what he's saying. Verse 15. Rather, he says, speak, speaking the truth in love. Which, by the way, really good point, Paul. <laughs> really good point. Like, as soon as you say, all right, we need to have unity in the knowledge of the Son of God and make sure that we're not drifting in doctrine. He then says, so speak the truth in love, okay? Because we've also seen the opposite uh, flip side of, of this problem where you are so focused on these propositional truths that there's no love in your midst. And the Spirit, by the way, still isn't there. It's fled long ago. So then he says, so speak the truth in love. All right, be love, like out of love for one another, just guide each other and pour into each other. Speak the truth in love. Verse 15, we are then to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly like the body, eating a hamburger, all right, esophagus is doing its job, tendons, muscles doing their job. When every part is working together, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, let me give you a formula, all right? Because you like math. I, I think we, do we have it on the board? Call me, thank you. So there's our formula. All right, let me explain this to you. Um, that C should be an E, all right? So every formula, you always begin with a correction. This is like typical, like, mathematic 101, all right? So E, um, and that's my fault, not Kwame's. That was all planned. I'm teaching you ma how mathematics works. <laughs> e plus RL plus GC equals a unified body. All right. If you want to take notes as to what these means, you what these mean, you, you might want to do that. Um, e or C. Let's, let's go with C. <laughs> a Christian. All right? And that actually works very well. E, if you, if you like E, that's eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Which, by the way, proves that you're a Christian. All right? Now, don't get me wrong. An eagerness to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit does not make you a Christian, but it proves you're a Christian. It proves that you have been filled with the Spirit. And if you're filled with God's Spirit, the only thing you can think about is being unified. So it's what you work toward. It's what you act toward. You're eager to live that out. In Forgotten God, Francis Chan, he wrote uh, this, this little example. Um, suppose you were given Michael Jordan's spirit. Suppose, and, and you're going around telling people, I've got Michael Jordan's spirit. And you can't touch the net. All right? You can't shoot a free throw. It would be laughable. Amen? So suppose we as a church, as a body and as individuals, suppose we go around telling people that we're filled with the Spirit of God, yet we're divided by race. 
We're divided by economics. We're divided in doctrine. Yet we're telling people that we're united with one spirit. It's laughable. So an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit, to prove that you are a C, a Christian, plus RL, which stands for a real love. Guys, we need to beware of, of, of having a love which seeks familiarity. Which seeks sameness. Comfort. For example, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism. But on Sundays, we're not united. Is it still true that Sundays are the most segregated hour of the week? Sundays at 10 o'clock? I believe it probably is. Beware of a Christian love, quote unquote, that seeks familiarity, that seeks sameness. Thibidi Anyabwile, who I love, absolutely love, <laughs> he said this. He says, my concern, Thibidi is an uh, African-American pastor in Grand Cayman. Um, and uh, never mind, I was going to make a Grand Cayman joke. Thibidi says this, my concern is that Christians united in Christ, quote unquote, Sunday to Sunday, month to month, year after year, Christians of every hue are abandoning one another in lovelessness. He says this, race seems overpowering, even though it's a myth. And love seeks convenience and familiarity. To be bounded then by those things, convenience and familiarity. But he, he concludes, Christ though calls us to a breadth of love like his own, which calls every tribe and every tongue and every nation and he says it has to be displayed in our churches. Are you loving based on familiarity? Based on, listen, convenience. Quick way to determine that. Make a photo book of all of your friends. Start flipping through the pages. Are you loving based on familiarity? Are you loving based on convenience? It's convicting, isn't it? Or are you embracing the unity and the oneness of the body of Christ? One of the things Andrea said when we were talking earlier was, she, 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 like her natural tendency is to be around black women. But she, long ago, determined that she is not going to love based on familiar, familiarity and convenience. And she's going to recognize, wait a second, this is all just a myth. 
We're just telling us these things. And it's keeping us divided. I mean, do you really think that you have nothing in common with someone else who doesn't look like you or doesn't make as much money than you or makes more money than you do, lives in a different neighborhood? You really think you have nothing in common? We need to love with a real, a real love. And then you might say, well, that's just not natural. It's, I mean, it's just not natural. We, we determined in Ephesians chapter 2 that we as Christians are not to carry out the desires of our bodies. We're not to just do what feels right and what is natural, what comes easy and what is convenient. So let us love then the body of Christ and let us reflect that in the way that we spend our time, in our relationships, in who we eat with, in who we invite to our parties. So C, Christian, or E, an eagerness, plus RL, real love, plus GC, and that stands for genuine community. Genuine community. Listen, we can only do our part. We can only, as going back to the hamburger, human body example, we can only operate if we are in community with each other. Now, Sunday morning only churches just didn't make sense or wouldn't make sense in the New Testament. That would be laughable to them. Like, oh, seriously? You think you're a church and you just get, get together on Sundays? You say you're part of this church and you're only there one hour a week with these people? Like, they, they probably would chuckle at that. They would think you're telling them a joke. Like, we need to be in relationships in genuine community with one another. The esophagus separated from the body six days a week doesn't do much good, does it? Guys, you have no clue, even in this room, who needs you in their lives. And they might not be the person you've been thinking of. Who needs someone to pray with them to sit with them, who need someone to disciple them, or who needs to disciple. Have you ever considered asking someone to disciple you? So we must be in genuine community. In our context, within the garden, currently we have what we call house communities. These small groups that meet throughout the week, Currently, we have three of them open to starting 100 more. To be in relationships with each other, to offer ways to pray for each other, to pray for one another, to bear each other's burdens, to confess, which by the way, house, those of you who are part of house communities, do you ever confess your sins to each other? And if you don't, shame on you. To confess your sins to one another. Now, granted, little asterisks there, some, some sins you might not want to confess in a, in a group setting. 
it might be one-on-one. But are we confessing our sins to each other? One-on-one discipling. I, one way that I personally seek to equip the body is through laboring to put people who want to be discipled into relationships with those who can disciple. One-on-one. One-on-two. To pray together. To be in Bible studies together. To read a book together. And what this does for us It creates, I mean, we are bringing then our weapons for war together and we are going to war. What I have might be what you need. What you have might be what I need. But we will never know that if we don't seek to actively get in relationships with one another. And by the way, say it again. Whose burden is it to make sure that you're in a relationship with someone in the church. Yours. You're to do the work of the ministry, even in your own life. Seek it out. Find people. Sign up for a house community or one-on-one discipleship before you leave here today. So, E, eagerness, or C, Christian, someone who's genuinely filled with the Spirit of God, plus real, embracing a real kind of love, plus genuine, being in genuine community with one another equals then a unified body. And if if you're not a Christian here, we welcome you to journey with us in every step of this way. We welcome you every Sunday to come and explore and ask questions. We have a one-on-one discipleship called Christianity Explained. If you would like to sit down with someone and take six weeks to understand what Christianity really is about, because what I find is most Christians don't really know what Christianity is about. It's just that simple. And often, when they find out, the lights turn on, and like, oh, wow. (laughs) God did that for me? Okay, cool. Got it. But if if you're not a Christian, your call is to repentance, and your invitation is to the unity of this body. But it begins with repentance and turning to him who saves you. Because, by the way, it is the work of Christ that we are unified. This, this isn't something that comes from our laboring. It's not something that comes from our efforts alone. It is the work of Christ in his for, for the forgiveness of our sins, the connecting with one another. It is the work of Christ entirely in our midst that saves us, that unifies us. So if you're not a Christian, I just implore you to look to Christ this morning and embrace his gift of salvation through his blood shed for you on the cross. And for those of you who are Christians, walk worthy of your invitation to the gospel. Walk worthy of your calling in the body of Christ. You say that you have been indeed chosen by the Father. The Son poured out His blood for you. The Spirit sealed you. You've been united in a body, Jew and Gentile, the dividing wall of hostility broken down. We've come together. The angels are observing us and learning from us. So act like it. So act like it. And may we be one as Christ.
Let's pray together. Father, we uh, are, are thrilled to be um, in your presence and also in the presence of one, one another. To recognize that we are not part of some individualistic kind of faith or religion, but that we are called to a new humanity. A humanity where violence is forever done away with. A humanity where one day we live in the hope and the promise that the dead will indeed be raised and we will be completely made whole in your presence. So God, do that work. Begin that work in us right now. Even though we are still fleshly, we still struggle with sin, God, let us be moving in that trajectory to which the Holy Spirit is calling us. May we embrace one another. May we use the gifts that you've given us for the building up of the church to do the work of the ministry so that we may be united in our faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God so that we're not driven by every wind of doctrine that comes our way but yet speaking the truth in love to one another. Grow us into the body of which Christ is our head. And it's in his name that we pray. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.